Today's guest is Dr. Susan McFadden, a professor emerita of psychology, University of Wisconsin, Oshkosh. Susan retired from the university in June of 2012, and since then has volunteered in many capacities for the Fox Valley Memory Project, a nonprofit she co-founded in 2012. Susan is also a writer, having co-authored several books. Today, we're going to be talking about her newest adventure. Her book, Dementia-Friendly Communities, Why We Need Them, and How We Create Them. I'm Bruce Devereaux, and welcome to The Creatively Engaging. Now, your new book... Dementia-Friendly Communities, Why We Need Them, and How We Create Them. First off, I have to say, the amount of research that you must have done for this book. <laughs> like, it's absolutely amazing. I have the Kindle version, and what I really, really love, at the end of each chapter, the resources with the hyperlinks, you could get lost in the resources at the end, just continually checking and looking and when I was thinking of it, I was thinking, oh my gosh, one podcast episode? I think this could be like a season. <laughs> so how long was that whole process for you of, of writing from start to finish? Well, the actual writing part, you know, probably a couple years, but the gathering the information and thinking about this, um, I would say that probably dates back. 10 years or more. I, um, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I thank you for mentioning the end notes mm. because I had so much fun doing them because I could put some, you know, kind of personal things into some of them. So I was socialized into this world through psychology, mm-hmm. right? Because that's my background in psychology and have always used APA style. Well, APA style is very strict. You do not use endnotes, right? You do not use footnotes and you cite everything in the text. Well, I didn't want to do that. And so it was so liberating for me to be able to use the endnotes, but I still had that old psychologist thing that I had to do those citations. <laughs> nice. So Susan, we're looking at Aging's becoming a global issue. Yep. People are having fewer children. We're seeing a shifting in family relations. One of the things that struck me in your book was when you posed the question, can we really imagine a world in which millions of those with frailty and dementia move out of their homes and into some type of residential care? Yeah, I mean, that was a big motivation for writing the book. Um, you know, people have asked me, why did you do this? And I've got several reasons, but that's a big one. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to talk to my students about how it seemed like care communities were popping up like mushrooms everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. You, uh, you know, you turn around and there's a new one being built. And yet when you think about it, it, it is not going to be possible to house everyone who has dementia in one of these places, nor should we. Mm-hmm. Why should we why should we have all these people in these places that then become cut off from their communities and invisible? It's wrong. And so we need to change our thinking about this 
And the other thing is, you know, you talked about the shift in family relations, right? And people having fewer children, etc. And if you look at the psychology literature on people living with dementia and social relationships, it's almost entirely about families. Right. It's not about friends. Hmm. It's 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 not about the wider community. And and yet and so what we have done is to assume that it is entirely the responsibility of the family. And then we end up with all these stressed out care partners. Right, the burned-out caregiver. Right. You know, as we look at the big numbers, as I called them, right, the predictions of organizations like the Alzheimer's Association about how many people are going to have some type of dementia, we just cannot be thinking that we are going to have all these people housed in memory care. It's very expensive. As we've seen in the pandemic, incredibly isolating for a lot of people. Yeah, and the resources, you know, even what I know right now at our site, the challenges of staffing, the challenges of budgets. Our site is a not-for-profit uh, site, a private not-for-profit. Uh, but the resources, the staffing, the financials are just not going to be there. So it really sort of hammers home the importance of a community-based network yes. of living and support. Yes. Most Absolutely. Yes. And, and in conjunction, I'm sure, obviously, we're still going to have uh, care centers, campuses of care, as we refer to them. So changing, uh, you know, like one of the first steps I've always thought also is to building an inclusive community is for those individuals with a dementia would be changing the language and the narrative. Oh, yes. And... As we both know in our experience, that is that is really sort of the first step. Would you agree to that on, on changing that language and narrative? Completely, yes. And I talked about that a lot in the book. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I began it by saying we need a new story here because the old story is just all gloom and doom. Mm -hmm. It's fear and so nobody wants to engage with this topic. I wrote a book a few years ago. Actually, my husband and I co-authored it, and it was called Aging Together, Dementia, Friendship, and Flourishing Communities. Okay, so the idea that we are all aging together. Right. And that dementia is a part of that. And friendship, and but I think that's necessary for flourishing communities. Well, I had people tell me, Bruce that I should not put the word dementia in the title of the book. Right. Because it was nobody would buy it. It would just scare too many people off. Mm. So, you know, that's it's just one small example of this narrative that needs to change. And the language is a place to start. So we talk about people having dementia, people living with dementia, and we talk about living with a dementia. Mm -hmm you know, or a type of dementia, it's not all about Alzheimer's disease. Obviously, the largest one on the higher profile. So it, if people first enter into trying to gain an understanding of it, it's easy to refer to Alzheimer's as the yes. dementia. So, yeah. Yeah, but as I told that story in the book, when you only talk about Alzheimer's, then people who have some other type of dementia feel excluded 
they feel like, well, you know, there's no place for me at this meeting or whatever. So I really like, you know, idea of talking about a dementia or a type of dementia. I think that helps. There are several other language things that make me crazy too, (laughs) that I'm trying to change. (laughs) I bet a tsunami and epidemic. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, I hear those words at gerontology meetings from people who should know better. And then I, of course, I hear it on, you know, the local news. I don't know how to address this. Perhaps we'll stop saying the epidemic. Maybe we'll stop saying the epidemic of dementia. I hope. We've all lived through this awful time of a pandemic. When you say the epidemic of dementia, then that associates it with things that are contagious, right? Right. And with some disease that you address by isolating people. And that's just the opposite of what you want to do with folks who have a dementia. Maybe that will tie in or be lightened a bit in the future when we start to shift away a bit from dementia just being a disease, but rather looking at it as more of a disability um, that has some disabling conditions attached to the condition. Uh, Similar to... I think, in the early days of the physical disability movement. Yes. Right? So once people start to look at it in that capacity as not just a disease, but a condition that, that right. creates different levels of ability and, and changing abilities. So. Yeah, but, you know, that's a really tricky thing in the States. I don't know about in Canada, but yes, I I agree with you. I think it should be called a disability, but we have this Americans with Disability Act right. and ADA. It has resulted in many good things, but employers are terrified of that because You know, if they've got somebody, you know, 58 years old who's gotten a diagnosis of some type of dementia, and that person says, I have a disability. Right. Well, now the Social Security Administration allows for early onset to be counted as a disability. And so you can get disability SSDI. But if somebody has has a diagnosis of a dementia and they're still working and they say to their employer, well, can you make accommodations to enable me to continue to work? Because in the States, of course, a lot of people's health insurance counts on being employed. It's very complicated, Mm -hmm. but I completely agree with you. We should be thinking about it as a type of a disability, just like, you know, in the whole mental health world, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't think we're there yet, but I hope we get there. Is there work being done around the WHO in that capacity? Like I've heard in Kate Swafer's readings and such that she has been talking about that and the, and the shift and that they foresee that potentially happening within the next five years or so in that area. Oh, yeah. I hope so. You know, I think the pandemic has shoved a lot of things off to the side. Mm-hmm. So we're going to need to get through this very challenging time. Hopefully, you know, these ideas will have a resurgence. Um, and and also, you know, the pandemic has really brought into focus 
so many inequities and so many social problems. We're going to have to start addressing them. So you'd mentioned, I'm just going to step back for a second about the friendship because that's, I see families at the care center where I work and I also obviously see the friendships of, well, um, that the people have that are, are living there. And in your book, Aging Together, Dementia, Friendship and Flourishing Communities. So the friendships are a powerful way to help move forward, right? After a person receives a diagnosis. But also, what do you see as some of the dynamics that you've witnessed when friends, between friends, when a dementia diagnosis enters the picture? A lot. Uh, one of the um, saddest things that I see is, and, and here, is when people say, well, um, I just want to remember him like he was, right? Classic one, yes. Mm -hmm. Or people will say, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. You know, what if I say the wrong thing and he gets upset? Well, what if you say the wrong thing to anybody, right? Mm -hmm. You figure out a way to repair that. You know, I, I just... I don't know how to act around my friend anymore. My friend asks me the same question over and over again, and it's so frustrating, and I get irritated. And so it's just as well to let the friendship go. I mean, I hear these kinds of things all the time. I think people need to be educated about how to stay in friendship with their friends who are, you know, we talk about, we use that metaphor of the journey of dementia, right? You know, mm -hmm. I just had to have this experience recently, Bruce, um, with a, a very good friend of mine who I, I said, I love you. I will always be your friend, but I think you need to talk to your doctor. I'm seeing some things that are concerning to me. And, and I just, think you need to speak with your doctor. And I just heard today that a, an appointment has been made. Oh, good. But, but that was a hard thing to say as a friend, you know? We don't want to impose on people and we don't want to tell them what to do, etc. I was saying to this person, I care about you and I'm concerned about what I'm seeing. And I, I, I really think you should you know, just go get it checked out. And, and that's a place to start. So I think that we all need to learn how to have these conversations. And then we need to learn how to understand people's changing needs, that we have to be open to the changing needs of the person having a dementia and the care partner. Mm -hmm. Because What's, you know, what's the needs are at the very beginning of the journey are going to be different from toward the end. And so that's part of this education for friendship that I think we need to be doing. How did your friend react when you first mentioned to them? Well, uh, we were taking a walk and what I was noticing was a difference in gait. I have taken many, many walks with this person. I noticed that their, the, their shoes were shuffling along and I could hear the steps and, and I had never noticed that before. And so I was thinking about that and we were walking and talking about the beautiful flowers of the day. And I thought, this is a change and I need to say something because it's concerning this change. And so I did. I said, 
you know, I've noticed that there's been a change in the way you're walking. And here's what I'm seeing and hearing. And then, you know, we walked a little further and we talked more about the flowers and the trees. And then she said, I hope I don't have Parkinson's. And I said, well, I hope you don't either, but you need to get it checked out. And that's where we left it. It's a hard conversation to have. Exactly. But I think that, I mean, she was not going to see her doctor till sometime later this summer. And now she's going to see her doctor next week. Well, she's certainly lucky to have you as a good friend. There's no doubt about that. It's a hard conversation. But, but I said to her, I said, I will always be your friend. And, and I think you need to assure people of that. And you need to, you need to be sincere about it. And you need to be thinking about the challenges that will come to both of you. And, you know, to make our communities places that are welcoming and hospitable and understanding for people living with some type of dementia. And that's what I loved about in, I think it was, I'm going to jog my memory, chapter seven, where you talk about reimagining community and mm -hmm. that, you know, a dementia friendly community is really just about reimagining the community or reshaping the one that we already have mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and push that forward. Yes, yes, absolutely. We're going to have to, Bruce. I mean, the, we're, we're not going to have an alternative here. We look at the demographics, right? We see the aging baby boom cohort, and, and we know that we have no magic cure for these dementias. We've got some things coming down the line. We're doing these upstream kinds of interventions, or you know, we've got trials for drugs, et cetera, for the upstream interventions, but that is not going to help all the people who are living with dementia now, right? nor is it going to help most people who are not going to be able to afford the PET scans and the infusions once a month that are going to cost a lot of money. We're just going to have to figure it out. And that really ties into what you also mentioned in that chapter, which I love the two simple lines that dementia is a social experience and care is a social experience. And yes, yes. As a person who works in the field, it's probably one of the most frustrating things for me because why do we keep focusing on the medical experience? And I know obviously the value of the medical and the clinical experience. Yeah. But for most, it is not the answer. The social experience is just crucial. That's right. Absolutely. That's one of the life-changing events that I experienced back in the late 90s was when I discovered the work of Tom Kitwood. So he talks about reimagining dementia, right? Mm -hmm. And he has that thing in his book where he's talking about, okay, somebody's got a neurological problem. And then they encounter that, what he called that malignant social psychology, right? They've got some kind of neurological problem, and now they've got people abandoning them or people yelling at them out of frustration, you know, whatever. And that makes the neurological problem worse, right? Mm -hmm. 
you know, we've seen this in the pandemic time in terms of the social isolation. We know how many people's symptoms have worsened because they have lost those social connections, those important social connections. And it's not just the person having the dementia, but it's also the care partner. So there's this interaction and uh, it, you know, one of the, we, you were talking about language before, you know, you mentioned epidemic and tsunami, and those are horrible ways of talking about the numbers of people. But I also get very frustrated when people only want to talk about the brain. The brain is part of the body, and the body lives in a social environment, and the brain processes all this information. I get tired of presentations on Alzheimer's or other types of dementia, and all they show are diseased brain pictures. Right. No, this is a person. This is a human being. So that's another thing that I think we need to change. It's not just about the brain. If I walk into a space where there's an individual with a dementia, and I see their reaction, the, the reaction isn't just a total cognitive reaction to me right the smile they may not remember my name there's an association between the engagements that we've had the creative engagements that we've had before and built that sort of body connection physical connection and social connection and emotional connection with the individual that's Mm -hmm. given that bond it's not definitely not a total cerebral relationship. That's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I often talk about how people having a dementia, they have good BS detectors. (laughs) (laughs) Because (laughs) say you come in um, to like a situation where you were describing you're interacting with somebody having dementia, and you're having a bad day, Mm -hmm. right? And you put on this fake smile. Well, there's a difference in the brain in terms of a genuine smile and a fake smile. And somebody who has a dementia, they know what a fake smile is, right? And they can sense the messages that you are giving off of your body about your emotional state. They can see the frustration on your face or they can see the joy on your face. Mm -hmm. It's not cognitively processed. It's processed in other parts of the brain that are not affected by a dementia. Likewise, like you with your creative engagement activities and the things I do, it, you know, I, I, we, we bring this laughter and joy and social interaction into the common room in, say, a care community. And then we have to leave. It's over. But something remains mm-hmm. in terms of the, positive emotion that we have elicited and it lasts you know i mean drug companies spend bazillions of dollars trying to figure out a pill that would make you feel that way we can we can bring an artist <laughs> so i got to take you back to the year 2012 okay all right it was a very very hot june in milwaukee <laughs> and we were attending the first Create Change Institute. And I remember uh, having breakfast with you that day at, 
at the hotel uh-huh. and we were having a really inspiring conversation and you were we were chatting about many different things i think i had a cross lines music project on the go that time and you were actively listening to me ramble on you know that conference for me definitely changed the course of my career mm. but what i didn't know at the time and i read in your book that you and john were about to embark on a major mm. project yourself the Fox Valley Memory Project. Right. And you were launching that, it would be just five months later in the November, right, of 2012. Mm-hmm. So yeah. could you describe a little bit about what the Fox Valley Memory Project is? Yeah, I'd be happy to. The Fox Valley Memory Project is something that came out of discussions I was having with a small group of people here. We're in um, North East Wisconsin. So we're kind of between Milwaukee and Green Bay. And we looked around uh, and saw that there were very few programs or services for people living with dementia, uh, some government things, but nobody knew about them and not much was happening. So you have to go back a year before that when I discovered on a Facebook page, the Memory People Facebook page, somebody mentioned memory cafes. I had never heard of a memory cafe. And I Googled it, found out that in England, they had all these memory cafes. They were community-based, and there were a lot of volunteers involved with them, and they were serving people living with dementia in the community. I thought, well, you know, maybe we can do that here. And so we applied for a planning grant. And so that's what we did. And we said to people, what are the things in the community that you love doing? And what would you not be able to do anymore if you had some type of dementia? Mm. Right? What would be closed off to you? And, you know, the bells start to ring and people start to think, oh my, yeah. After we got the planning grant and the scrambled eggs and toast, we applied for uh, three year grants and were able to fund the launch of this organization called Fox Valley Memory Project, which began in November, you're correct, in November 2012 with Memory Cafes, we hired a part-time person. That's all we had was one part-time person. But we launched the Memory Cafes. But before that, my husband and I had given talks at every Rotary meeting and Lions Club meeting and Kiwanis and churches and government groups and everybody we could think of to just talk about this new way of thinking about people living with dementia in our community. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of laid the groundwork to say, you know, this is what's coming. And then we opened the Memory Cafe. You know, I always am so respectful of the courage it took for those families early on to, to come to this brand new thing. They didn't know anybody else. They, they walk into this room and, you know, we greet them and we're friendly and we have name tags and we have a engaging program and all that. But you know what it's like, with, you know, you're living with somebody having a dementia. They don't always want to go out, right? Right. They, and they certainly don't want to go to a new thing necessarily. And the courage that those people showed 
And so they started coming to our memory cafes. And from we now, well, of course, we had to go on Zoom for memory cafes during the pandemic. But next month, we will have our first in-person memory cafe uh, since, well, early March 2020. Yeah, over a year. Yeah. Wow. That is yeah. going to be a very interesting experience when people are physically yes. able to come back together. Yes, but we don't want to let go of the Zoom either because, what? Uh, for example, we have one family where the person just cannot leave the home and we want to still include them. You know, as I said, we started with memory cafes, but we have a bunch of other programs and services that we offer now, one of which I'll be doing this afternoon. We have a chorus mm. and we've had this chorus since 2014. Up until 2020, you know, March of 2020, we met in person and it was wonderful. And we performed and, you know, we, we have cool t-shirts we wear for our performances and we've really got a terrific community, but we had to go on Zoom. Well, you can't all sing together on Zoom. So people had to be muted, but nevertheless, week after week, people came together. Well, just three weeks ago, we found a place, it's a, it's a church basement where we were able to meet in person, and our accompanist happens to be the organist there, so we were able to secure this location. But only 10 people were allowed to be there, and we had to wear masks. Right. We figured out a way to have people in person, but we also were Zooming so we've got this kind of hybrid model now for our chorus that the pandemic has forced us to have. But we're going to continue that because we've got these folks who want to participate, but they can't leave their house right. for one reason or another. Just this afternoon, we're going to have a chorus gathering for the first time. People who are vaccinated will be able to be there without masks but some people will still choose to wear masks, which is fine. But we'll have some people joining us on Zoom. That's a way of being inclusive. Yeah, and it's an interesting positive that's come out of this. Also, yes. you know, with the Zoom hybrid, we'll call it. I find myself, even with some of the, uh, the people that live at our site, uh, their families are scattered around the world. Yeah. Being able to have that uh, still connection which they wouldn't have had before which has been fabulous too so yes and for programming and for projects mm -hmm. it doesn't become the total focus of how we're communicating right. but becomes that nice hybrid that gives us a great option that hot summer and that was hot summer <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking do people have summers like this all the time in milwaukee <laughs> i was just brutal how yeah, well, hot that was you should in january sometime <laughs> well yeah that's the other uh, i guess the, the two j's right right J june yeah. and january uh, right. but it was lovely i mean it was fantastic and like i had mentioned it definitely did change the course of of my career for sure but you know i learned about your your fox valley memory project but also what was interesting was from that first conference there was a whole cohort of inspired individuals that just seem to spill out from Ann Basting's uh, first Create Change Institute. I know for me, it was the seed that planted our Imagination Network 
project that has been going for the last six years, seven years, and now continues to into research projects and expands and expands and expands, which is great. So we're looking at creativity. We're looking at the human spirit. We're looking at the arts. We're looking at creative engagement being unleashed into the traditional care models and working towards twisting the perceptions of what those with a dementia could be part of. Now, I know that you, you, you've been the chairperson of the Time Slips organization, Anne's organization that she started for six years, your dear mm-hmm. friend of Anne's, and I know that you could speak for hours about the value of creative oh, yes. engagement, like some of the projects such as Dementia Without Borders, which just happened on um, yes. our, our border on this side. Some of our uh, people that I know were involved with. Obviously, the big one Anne started with, the Penelope Project, mm-hmm. um, your project, Time Slips Town, yep. and probably the biggest, one of the biggest, I'm sure, and just latest is Wendy's Neverland. Mm-hmm. So now, if, if I could ask you, if you could funnel it down, and I know this is a, it's a big question and there's many areas that, to look at, why are creativity and creative engagement so powerful in changing the perceptions and creating value for those with a dementia and the community in which they live. You know, I'll go back to Anne for a moment. I loved that she's so good at writing titles for books. Her book, Forget Memory. Yes, yeah. I have um, a T-shirt, a Time Slips T-shirt that says, Forget Memory, Try Imagination. You know, we are so focused on the cognitive and we're so focused, you know, we we ascribe value to how big your hard drive is, you know, your brain. And but when we talk about that, we're only talking about cognition. We're only talking about the rational part of being human. And, you know, we have this whole Western enlightenment tradition that we're dealing with Mm -hmm. that says, you know, I think therefore I am that your value as a human being comes from all your cognitive abilities. And so we've got, you know, Western philosophy that has talked about, you know, if you look at ethics, for example, why do we behave ethically towards people? Well, it's because they can think, right? Well, What happens when you can no longer think the way you used to? Mm -hmm. You're still a human being with value and with, and with the opportunity, if, if you have it to bring joy to others. And that's what the whole time slips philosophy is about is that through this creative engagement, you bring joy, not only to the person who lives with a dementia, but then you spread it outward to the community. I see this all the time. And, and that's, that's one of the key lessons, I think, of the whole Time Slips project is that, yes, we'll create the stories in our you know, care community, but we won't just keep them here. We'll have, we'll have a party. We'll have a story party. Or we were, you and I were talking about Gary Glazner before. Mm. Uh, Gary came to Appleton in 2014. Uh, so we had Fox Valley Memory Project had started. And he came and he did trainings in his Alzheimer's Poetry Project technique. 
at some care communities here. And then we gathered people together in at our senior center with their families and friends, and we invited people from the community too for a, a poetry party to show people what's possible. And it was beautiful. In your book, you also dedicated a section, a chapter to spiritual connections. I love the part where British poet and teacher John Killick defines spirituality as the search for what gives zest, energy, meaning, and identity to a person's life in relation to other people and to the wider world. Spirituality can be experienced in feelings of awe or wonder and those moments of life which take you beyond the mundane into a sacred place. It's interesting because spiritual connections, it seems that this is a domain that many feel is not really a value, is if you have a dementia. You don't need a spiritual connection. I've heard people say that. What do you feel makes maintaining a spiritual connection so important for somebody with a dementia? Well, where to start? I'm I'm so <laughs> I'm so sh- <laughs> I'm so shocked shocked to hear that um, you've heard people say, you know, you have a dementia, you don't need to go anymore. It's probably it may be more. I don't want to take you anymore. Could be. You know, when you, it, I mean, there's so many aspects to people's spiritual lives. For many people, it, it's not just about or ever about being in a religious uh, building, right? A church, a synagogue, a mosque, whatever. It's more, they feel this connection that is meaningful in the natural world. They feel it when they are listening to music, experiencing art or drama or poetry or whatever. They feel something beyond themselves. Or I use that quote that I love from William James. He talked about something more. Okay, there's something more besides, you know, just this everyday physical material world that people can experience. And they can continue to experience that when they journey into dementia. And they experience it from art. They experience it in the natural world, except unfortunately, in my opinion, People living with a dementia and a lot of older people in general are nature deprived. And because we don't recognize how important that is, I mean, you experience that is a meaningful connection with another person, right? You walk away from that interaction with the person and you feel like there was something more that happened there. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't stop when you have some type of dementia. And going back to what you said um, when you started this uh, discussion about spirituality, about people saying, well, they don't need to go to church anymore. If they have had this behavior, this tradition, this habit, whatever you want to call it, of, you know, on Sundays or on Saturdays or on Friday nights, we go to this place with other people, we hear familiar music, we hear familiar texts, we see familiar people. Um, This is meaningful. Mm -hmm. You know, a person who doesn't have dementia 
can't always put it into words as to what it was all about, right? What theology are you articulating here? No, they just say, when I do this, it makes me feel connected to something bigger than myself. And that doesn't stop when you have some type of dementia. It's that connection. That possibility. Yeah, it's that connection to the community. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's the it's the rituals. We we have rituals that are so well learned that you do not need to, to have this kind of rational cognitive processing going on. You know what that ritual means, right? You and 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 you know how it feels to participate in that. You know, I'm mean, frankly, that's one of the things that's been lost in the pandemic is that people have not been able to gather for these kinds of um, meaningful interactions. And, and it's part of that emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. I have a psychology colleague who talks about spiritual intelligence. And I've written a paper about how elders who have a type of dementia can demonstrate spiritual intelligence, right? And emotional intelligence. And and just to use that word intelligence in the same sentence with dementia makes people say, what are you talking about? You know, because we think about intelligence in terms of, you know, cognition. Well, there's a lot more than that. One of the things that I really like that Anne... I would say initiated years back was the concept of can we change the care center to a cultural center? Mm-hmm. That was just like a bell went off for me when she said that because yes. we have these existing structures with individuals with resources in the community. Let's just make those connections with the greater community. Exactly that reciprocal sharing back and forth yes between between the whole community so yeah some pretty exciting times ahead i think absolutely yeah yeah i i am i am just wholeheartedly supportive of that idea i often when i was giving lectures to people in person i would show a slide of a 13th century castle in england with a moat around it and i said this is what a lot of our care communities are like they've got invisible moats the only people that cross the bridge are the folks who work there or, you know, a couple family members. But the community acts as if I can't go there, right? We don't cross that bridge. Well, if we open up these care communities to the community, we invite them in, we we produce a play like Wendy's Neverland. We show people what's possible and we break down those barriers. And that's what we need to do. And as you mentioned in the pandemic, you know, we can't go back to the way that it was. And if anything, the, the COVID era has really laid bare a lot of the weaknesses in, in so many areas, but it has also shown the power of communities and it has also yep. shown the power of creativity and creative thinking. So as we draw to a close, so how do you see we create this momentum to start building more inclusive communities as we are coming out of COVID? I think there's a number of different approaches that can be taken. I mean, some people are 
really engaged with this dementia friendly community movement, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have in the United States, we have dementia friendly America and we have dementia friends training coming over from England and Scotland. So there are those programmatic things that we had prior to the pandemic that I think are going to ramp up again post pandemic But hopefully also we will be thinking creatively about what new things we can do. And that's going to take, that's going to take some time. Importantly, it's going to take talking with people who live with a dementia about what they want from their communities and what their care partners want. And it's going to take some money. You know, the minute you mention that, people start running away, right? But it is because we are tremendously under-resourced in terms of respite, for example. Mm-hmm. And, to, and to explain to people what respite really means. You know, you and I were talking about memory camp before. We, we usually think about respite in terms of we, we take your loved one who has a dementia to this location and we leave them there for a couple hours or a whole day of some kind of hopefully creative engagement and not just sitting and looking at a television or something. And then we come back because we've been able to go do our grocery shopping and we do our, we get our haircut and visit a friend. Okay. And, and that is respite. It is. And it's very important. And we desperately need more opportunities for families to use programs like that. But our memory camp is also respite. And we even get money from the Respite Care Association of Wisconsin to give people camperships so that they, if they can't afford the fee for the whole family to come, we can support them. Because this organization sees our camp as respite because they come to camp, all the meals are taken care of, so they don't have to cook or think about menus or planning. All the programs are there. We've got volunteers so that, for example, if your loved one who has a type of dementia just wants to sit on a bench and look at the lake, well, we've got a volunteer who can sit with that person and look at the lake for an hour or more. While you go off and paddle a canoe or uh, go fishing or take a nap. That's respite. So we need to expand our definitions of these things because, you know, we've got them too much in a box, right? And we think of it only in one way and we need to get creative about that. And so there's lots of things we can do in our communities post-pandemic to enable people as they say in Great Britain, to live well with dementia. Well, Susan, just like in 2012 at that breakfast, I must say, <laughs> it was a, a, a lovely, inspiring experience having this chat today and our little bit of a technical glitch in the middle, but I think we're A-OK. Do you, Anything else that you'd like to share with us before we close out? Oh, Bruce, we could talk for hours. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Well, and, and you know, I think we should do this more frequently because like I mentioned in the beginning also, I think 
we have a whole series of podcasts uh, just coming out of your book. So, Dementia-friendly and inclusive communities happen not because someone completed a checklist, but because people living with dementia were asked what would make for a good life, and then were invited to participate in planning and carrying out activities to support as good a life as possible. These communities offer hope, not in the form of a miracle cure, but in the kind acts of neighbors, the helpful responses of shopkeepers, the support and respite offered to care partners, and the engagement of people of all ages interacting with individuals whose diagnosis still evokes such dread in many people. People living in these communities are unafraid to engage with the difficult third rail issues mentioned in this chapter. These are communities of people who do not deny the many difficult challenges of dementia, but always affirm possibilities for enduring meaningful relationships throughout the dementia journey, relationships that support the dignity of everyone who lives with a dementia. Thank you for taking the time to listen to today's podcast with Dr. Susan McFadden as we discussed her recent book, Dementia-Friendly Communities, Why We Need Them, and How We Create Them. Now, the quiz. Susan spoke of a type of intelligence that can happen during a certain time in a person's life. So if you know what that answer is, go to www.thecreativelyengaging.com. When you go to the opening page, you will see a little microphone down in the right corner of the opening page. So click on that microphone, leave me a voicemail. The first person to get the correct answer, I will send them a book. Once again, thanks for listening. And I hope you join us on June 30th for the next podcast, my guest, Dr. Ann Basting.